All right, hi everybody, welcome back. Um, going to get started. At the outset, I just wanted to quickly check in. So I understand, is it next week is interviews for some of you? There's like career services. How many people are maybe not gonna be here next week? Okay, so just a few people, okay. Um, best of luck with that. It's a very stressful time, I know, and you're really adding a whole big thing on top of an already difficult thing to get going with your semester. Um, so I really, you know, best of luck with that. I do want to mention, I've already actually had a couple students talk to me, because um, I am a practicing lawyer and I did practice at the DOJ for a number of years, where I know some people are interviewing. Um, if anybody ever wants to chat about, about that or clerking or anything like that, I'm always happy to talk about um, career stuff. Uh, you know, I find it interesting. So feel free to, to reach out if that's, if that's of interest to anyone. Um, today we are going to finish up our introductory discussion to the rule of law, which of course is going to permeate the rest of the course as well. And we're going to get into four cases. Um, and I think there may be a bit of time at the end, in which case I'll introduce the concept of remedies. Uh, before I dive into the cases, though, I just wanted to diagram on the board the sort of steps that may have been followed before you get to a Supreme Court of Canada case, like the cases we'll be looking at today. And it's always a long road, but in the administrative law context, it can be an especially long road. And so, you have your administrative decision as the foundation of any administrative law case. Somebody who has a power given to them by statute or by the royal prerogative makes a decision that affects somebody who doesn't like that decision. What do they do about it? The statute may say there's another administrative body you can go to for an internal review. You remember I used the example of workers' compensation they have these people in the enrichment at the workers' compensation branch just plowing through decision after decision after decision, hoping they get most of them right, but they have the workers' compensation appeal tribunal you know, a few blocks down the road, another big building enrichment, and they uh, provide an internal appeal mechanism. And so you have this internal review. You're still within the statute, right? You're still within a statutory administrative decision maker. If you're upset with what happened after your internal review in that context, you can then go to the BC Supreme Court, the trial court, for your judicial review. So admin decision, maybe an internal review, maybe you could bypass that and go right to the trial court. Maybe in some circumstances, you could bypass the trial court and go right to the court of appeal. That's going to be available only if it's afforded in a statute through a statutory appeal mechanism. So you have your administrative decision, you have maybe an internal review, read the statute. If there is a statutory appeal mechanism, you do what that says. Appeal to the trial court, appeal to the court of appeal, as the case may be. For example, National Energy Board goes right to the court of appeal. Uh, that person can go to court of action directly if only the statute says. Exactly, exactly. Well said. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. And we're going to get much deeper into statutory appeals, but that's a great point and I think a good point to raise right at the outset. So statutory appeals may say you can bring an appeal on this ground only. For instance, I um, was recently concerned with a statutory appeal from the uh, Law Society of British Columbia and the Legal Professions Act says you can go so here we had an administrative decision by a, a panel of the Law Society, a, um, a body that I hope you know, none of you have to see the wrong side of. Um, if you're unhappy with that as a lawyer and you get found that committed professional misconduct, there is an internal review that's available. You can go to a, it's called a review panel and it's all benchers, um, a bunch of them in a room to review the original decision. But you also have a statutory appeal that can bring you right to the court of appeal. It's a really sort of strange scheme for us lawyers. Um, you go from here to here or all the way up to here. But if you want to go to the court of appeal, as a lawyer, you can raise pretty much any ground. As the law society, if they were unhappy with the decision of the panel, they can only argue uh, questions of law. So there's a limit on what they can bring a statutory appeal on. Um, this is just is a sidebar, and I'm getting a bit off topic, but I, I'll mention it while I'm thinking of it. You may have said, wait, you just said law society hearing, and you said the law society can bring an appeal. What do you mean by that? There's a number of these bodies where there's this odd disconnect, where there's an independent decision-making component of the law society or of another body, but you know who prosecutes the case? It's also the law society. So you have a panel, a law society panel, and then the person bringing the, claim, the uh, you know, charges forward is the law society's sort of um, prosecutorial arm, which is a, can feel a bit strange. So the point of all this is I want to have in mind, when you get to the court of, Supreme Court of Canada within an administrative decision-making context, you may have had one, two, three, four, it's maybe the fifth decision that's going your way, that um, needs to be decided. You can see how this process, this judicial review process, can get extremely drawn out. Uh, Ron Corelli, we'll talk about in a second, you know, the decision that issue was something like 13 years after the guy got his liquor permit revoked. And there's a number of examples you can find where the administrative decision-making uh, review takes just an exceptionally long period of time. And we'll talk about how that might interface with the rule of law concerns um, as we get through this lecture. So this is not the final time we'll be talking about the order in which these sort of things happen, but I just wanted to have it on the board, have a bit of a touchstone to come back to throughout the lecture. And so you do you know, have in mind just how many steps there can be in a review of an administrative process. And you also might want to think in the back of your mind, boy, is that going to get expensive, right? If you're going to keep going up that ladder. Um, we'll come back to the practical implications of that and how you might want to deal with your clients uh, throughout the course. There's like tape on the ground, and I think I'm supposed to stay within it for COVID reasons, but I don't think I'll be able to. I'm just 
a notorious pacer. Um, imagine the podcast probably has like a Doppler effect as I walk back and forth in front of the mic. Sorry, I wish I could. When you're in court, like, you can't, obviously. So you have a lectern, I just have to like hold on to it for like dear life, just to <laughs> stay in one spot. Um, and I love like phone court, because I then just walk around the entire house with like my dog walking behind me. Um, all right, so before I jump into the cases, are there any questions um, arising from the last lecture or about the sort of more practical side of the course? All right, um, that's great. Um, I was very happy. I was worried that the lecture had not recorded last week, but it did. It did record. Really us. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, so I'll keep doing it. Um, I, I think it's it's really nice. Um, a lot of people are downloading it, which is weird. There's like 200 people down the last episode. So there's a whole bunch of people elsewhere in the world who are following right along with this. <laughs> Start putting ads on there. <laughs> All right, so let's. Um, this is brought to you by Squarespace. <laughs> the um, we're going to get into the cases now, and the first case, and the second case, and the third case, ironically, are not actually technically judicial review cases. So. I promise we'll get to some real admin law, but we have a, a road to get there, we're on it. And there's a reason I want to talk about Ron Corelli, Insight, and the Highwood Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses cases. Um, and then finally, Celgene is the last case where we finally get a real traditional judicial review. So Ron Corelli, have you studied this case before? Yes. Yeah. Um, it can come up in so many different contexts. If you want to understand constitutional law, you can look at it because it does get into some foundational separation of powers issues. If you want to study tort law, it's the basis for the tort of misfeasance in public office, which is a growing tort that is you know, pled quite regularly these days. And um, when I worked at the Department of Justice, obviously we're very concerned with it. it was, they're constantly a threat. And what, just to mention this at the outset, what the tort of misfeasance in public office is, uh, is effectively a tort that says a public officer abused their power in a sort of malicious and targeted way, causing me harm and I should be compensated for that. And it is a, um, sort of a, a backdrop concern that animates a whole lot of governance where you don't want to be sued for um, abusive power and the fact that these cases can even be brought can scare administrative decision makers uh, into you know, not wanting to not provide a, um, a right or a permit to a, a powerful interest. So for example, in, in the field of something like um, pipeline regulation, major mine regulation, if you could argue that the reason you're not building this billion dollar mine is because of the malicious intent of one individual officer in Canada or the province, the potential damages are the loss of that mine and the, and the profits from that mine. 
So it's a very real background concern when you're administering the law that you don't want to be sued for you know, disappointing somebody, which can lead to some incentives towards granting permits, uh, not refusing things on environmental, indigenous rights grounds. So uh, again, that's just background. We're going to sort of come back to that, but that, that thread of the intersection between administrative law and tort law, you know, the potential that a government official will owe money to somebody who's disappointed with the way they administered the law is something to keep in the back of your mind and certainly, of course, comes up in Ron Corelli. So you get it in constitutional law, you might get it in tort law, and you certainly need to get this case in administrative law. And so you're probably familiar with the facts, but I, I really like this case, and so I might go a bit deeper into the facts than you may have previously heard, because they really are interesting. And so what you have is coming out of the Second World War, you have in Quebec a very, um, Catholic government, the Union Nationale, the leaders, Maurice Duplessis. And interestingly enough, the way that government was formed, Duplessis was both the premier and the attorney general. He wore two hats in that government. And so, I mean, people here have probably spent some time in Montreal, I'm sure some McGill along here, and people who been there for various reasons, and it, it's such a, I lived there for four years, and it's so secular, like it's such a secular place, and yet there are churches everywhere, right? And you see the sort of, the bones of what used to be in terms of the extremely Catholic culture before the Quiet Revolution, and so this is sort of the, the, the height of the, um, that culture before you know, it's going to very quickly go away in the 1960s. And so, anything that wasn't Catholic was seen as a threat to some in this government, but in particular, Jehovah's Witnesses were seen as a threat. Because unlike other Protestant sects who would simply go about their business believing what they believe, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, um, go around trying to spread the religion, they feel it's their duty to, to do so. Go door to door, hand out pamphlets, but also sell material for a very little amount, but, but sell the, the copies of the Watchtower or whatever it is. So here's where the problem arises. The government doesn't like these Jehovah's Witnesses selling these um, copies or giving them out or doing any of their, their work. But says, aha, you're not licensed to sell this stuff in the street. I'm going to ticket you. I'm going to you know, arrest you for violating a bylaw or bending these, these tracks in the street. And the Jehovah's Witnesses say, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm spreading the word of God. This, this cannot be, I will not say that I've done anything wrong impasse, they get the, the result, okay, you're, you're going to stay in jail until you can pay bail. In comes in Frank Roncarelli. Frank Roncarelli is a wealthy restaurateur at the time. He has a very successful restaurant in Montreal, and he himself is a Jehovah's Witness. And he sees this 
obvious unfair situation that's happening to people who adhere to the same faith as him. So he begins bailing people out. He will spend his money to bail out individuals. His work is starts to get the attention of the government. They don't like it because he's undermining their efforts to crack down on the Jehovah's Witnesses' actions to spread their religion, which is seen as a threat undermining Roman Catholicism and the fundamental social order of Quebec. So he applies for a renewal of his liquor license. And in essence, the person who looks at it first is like, is this the same Frank Roncarelli as, as, as the guy who's, um, who's bailing out the Jehovah's Witnesses? And Duplessis says, you better act careful. Find out, make sure it's the same person. They come back, yeah, it's the same person. Duplessis says, okay. Um, the commission, the liquor commission is the one who approves this. Don't approve it. Don't give him his license. And they go one further and they say, you're not going to get your license. And you know what? You're never going to get a license. You're done here, Frank Roncarelli. So this happens in 1950, or 1946, I'm sorry, 1946, like right out of the Second World War. Frank Roncarelli tries to carry on his business without a liquor license of Flounders. Within a year, he sold his business. So what does he do? Well, this is 1946, and as you may remember from the um, first chapter that we read of the Administrative Law book, Administrative Law is a relatively recent, um, I wouldn't say invention, but it's come into its you know, full being very rather recently. And it was still very fledgling at the time, in the, uh, you know, around the time of the Second World War. You remember there was this you know, a few tribunals before World War I, some war in World War I, then it kind of goes back down, then a whole bunch come up during the Second World War, and then it takes off from there. But so he's right at the outset. So he doesn't go and say, aha, judicial review, give me my permit. That is exactly what he would do today, right? You would just say, wait, you denied my permit for this reason? Okay, I'm gonna go to the courts, I'll get them to, to deal with this in the context of a judicial review. But he's already lost his business. He didn't do that. He didn't go to the court to get a judicial review. He's lost his business. He's lost a whole lot of money. So he does the more traditional thing. He sues the person who wronged him, asking them to make him whole. Who does he sue? None other than the premier. He sues Duplessis. What's the defense that Duplessis raises? He says, I'm just acting within my statutory powers. The government was acting within its statutory powers. We're allowed to do this because the legislation says, effectively, that I have complete discretion over who gets a liquor permit. It's a privilege, right? So when you have a tort case where a defense of statutory authorization is raised, 
In essence, you get the same administrative law question being asked within that context. The question is, of course, was this action lawful? Was it consistent with the statute? Was it within jurisdiction, right? So the form of the case is tort. The question of whether the statutory authorization defense can succeed is really quintessentially administrative law. That same question of our is the executive acting within the scope of its statutory grant of power? That's why this tort case comes up in the administrative law context. So the case takes forever to wind its way up. It was on reserve at the trial level for something like two years, or some incredibly long period. But after that long reserve, kind of shocking to everybody, the trial court said, yes, duplicy, you violated this person's rights. And indeed, you have to pay some money, oh, not, not a whole lot of money even then. It was like $3,000 or something like that. Goes to the Court of Appeal in Quebec, and then it goes up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And this is in the days of you know, many different judgments. So you get a string of different judgments in the decision. The important one is the decision of Justice Rand. Interestingly enough, you have three dissenting judges, two Francophone Quebec dissents, and a dissent from um, Justice Cartwright, you know, to be Chief Justice Cartwright. Now, ironically, this, is, this little factoid always got me about two of the dissents. The two Francophone dissents who said, no, the premier uh, was fine in denying this person the um, liquor permit because he was, uh, you know, for whatever reason they want, basically. The two, two of those dissents um, were written by people who were either the son of a premier of Quebec or the nephew of a premier of Quebec. <laughs> so, it's sort of crazy. Um, but, and then Cartwright was perhaps the strongest, though, not related to a premier of Quebec, as far as I know. But Cartwright did say, um, maybe the, in the strongest terms, look, the legislation gave discretion. The legislation didn't give any fettering to that discretion as to when you can or cannot revoke a liquor permit. If you have unfettered discretion, you, you can't be outside it, right? So back of the mind, there's a rule of law argument there, right? Parliament said, you may revoke these lic this license at your discretion. Parliament didn't give any direction as to the reasons that you can revoke this um, license at your discretion. So could you make a rule of law argument that you know, following the words of parliament, the plain words of parliament, he is within the law? Yeah, I mean, you certainly can. If you want a strict rule of law that says, look to the statute, look to what the statute says, that is going to be what guides 
the source of, or the scope of executive power. And here it's very broad. That's what Parliament intended. You could certainly make an argument that that is mandated by the rule of law. Justice Rand would not agree with you, though. And it's his decision on the rule of law that has stood the test of time. And what he finds is that the rule of law is not uh, satisfied unless you ensure that a statutory power is exercised in a manner consistent with the intention of Parliament in passing that legislation and granting that power. So that, that's kind of the key, key thing to take away from this case is this reading in of implicit limits in the scope of a discretionary power that are founded in the intention of Parliament. Why did you even pass this in the first place, right? We're going to see that play through you know, into the modern approach of statutory interpretation. We'll see it in the Celgene case. And we see it demanded strongly by Rand, Justice Rand, on the basis of these rule of law concerns. And so I'm going to go through the sort of key passages from the case. Um, I don't unfortunately have in my notes the paragraph or page reference, but. I'm sure you've, you've noticed this, uh, clearly the, the key passage. So the paragraph before the really key paragraph, Justice Rand says, the field of licensed occupations and businesses of this nature is steadily becoming a greater concern to citizens generally. It is a matter of vital importance that a public administration that can refuse to allow a person to enter or continue a calling which in the absence of regulation, be free and legitimate, should be conducted with complete impartiality and integrity. So if you're going to say, we are now regulating the restaurant industry, and are going to say, who can serve food to whom, who can serve liquor to whom, you need to be impartial, and you need to act with integrity, is what Justice Rand is positing as a sort of foundation. The grounds for refusing or canceling a permit should unquestionably be such and such only as are incompatible with the purpose envisaged by the statute. So they're saying the only reason we should be able to grant or cancel or sorry to cancel a permit is if something's happening that's incompatible with the purpose of the statute. The duty of a commission, a liquor commission, is to serve those purposes and those only. Your only purpose is to accomplish the goal of Parliament in passing this statute. A decision to deny or cancel such a privilege lies within the discretion of the commission, but that means that decision is to be based upon a weighing of considerations pertinent to the object of the administration. So they're saying, it's not a question that you have the power to cancel this permit, right? No one's questioning that. The question is why, and when you're looking at why, you have to look 
at the considerations that are pertinent to the object of the act, to the object of parliament or the Quebec legislature, as the case may be, in granting and creating this scheme. And now we get to the key, key, key passage that you'll see referred to time and time again, implicitly and explicitly. When you say Ron Corelli, you're talking about this paragraph. In public regulation of this sort, there is no such thing as absolute and untrammeled discretion. So he's talking directly to Cartwright right now. He's saying, Justice Cartwright, you are dead wrong in describing this as an untrammeled discretion because an untrammeled discretion does not exist. That is, that action can be taken on any ground or for any reason that can be suggested to the mind of the administrator. No legislative act can, without express language, be taken to contemplate an unlimited arbitrary power exercisable for any purpose, however capricious or irrelevant, regardless of the nature or purpose of the statute. I'm going to stop there for a second. There's a, it's a very powerful statement. Then there's a little clause thrown in the middle that's kind of interesting. No legislative act can be taken to contemplate an unlimited arbitrary power exercisable for any purpose, however capricious or irrelevant. That all sounds good. But right in the middle, he says, without express language. That without express language means he seems to contemplate it would be okay to say, commission, you can cancel any permit for any reason whatsoever, no matter how capricious or irrelevant. He is still very firmly in a mindset of parliamentary supremacy, right? He's still very much saying that if the parliament chooses to do that, they can. But he's rooting himself in the idea that without that express language, I am not going to assume that that's what they meant. And if you remember, we come back to the first and second lectures of our course, where we talked about how the basis for finding, um, the basis to say that we can review the actions of the executive for reasonableness or for procedural fairness are these presumptions, these presumptions of what the legislature would have intended that we presume you wouldn't have intended to let you act unfairly. We presume you wouldn't have intended to let you act unreasonably. It is a different thing in a situation where there's express language that authorizes that. Then you have to get into a different frame of argument, a constitutional argument. We can talk about that more later. But I do want to just highlight that this decision, you know, coming from this strong rule of law grounding, still leaves room for parliamentary supremacy, but says, absent that explicit language, I am not going to assume an unfettered, unlimited discretion. Justice Rand goes on, he says, fraud and corruption in the commission may not be mentioned in statutes, but they're always implied as exceptions. He's saying it's always implied that you cannot act for a fraudulent or corrupt purpose. Discretion implies good faith in discharging public duty. It's an important point to take away, too. If you have a discretion, you must be acting in good faith in the exercise of that discretion. 
there's always a prescriptive within which the statute is intended to operate. There's always an intended scope of operation. And any clear departure from its lines or objects is just as objectionable as fraud or corruption. So he's saying there's a clear area you're supposed to operate within. If you go and act completely apart from that for some other reason altogether, even if it's not fraud or corruption, here it's, you know, to be uncharitable, maybe hatred and bigotry. He says, if you go outside that purpose, it's just as bad as fraud or corruption, or just as objectionable, at least. And then he, you know, he brings it right into almost a human rights framing. Could an applicant be refused a permit because he had been born in another province or because of the color of his hair? The ordinary language of the legislature cannot be so distorted. So that's the wrong Corelli that you need to know. That's the strong paragraph. Recognizing that the rule of law requires that discretion be exercised in accordance with the purpose for which it is granted. And if it is not, then it is not a valid exercise of that discretion. And it's outside of the jurisdiction and it's an act that cannot stand if it's challenged in an administrative law framework, and it's an act to which you could not raise a defense of statutory authority if you were challenged in a tort law context. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I mean, if a true, you could probably write, I think in his mind, you could probably write a statute so absolutely that would um, allow you to act in bad faith. Uh, I think there's a tension in his reasoning. He seems to sort of be pushing and pulling on this concept. Um, but yes, I would say that's, that's more or less accurate. Um, he seems, the reality is it's sort of a hypothetical question because Parliament will never draft a piece of legislation that says, here's a power that you can use and abuse in any way you want, bad faith or not. Uh, it's a horribly unpopular idea to do that. So it, it's sort of a hypothetical abstract. Um, but this, this tension between um, parliamentary supremacy, if Parliament says they are doing something, they can do it versus good faith and um, staying within the purpose of a statute is a tension that you want to you know, retain from this case. A quick question. Yeah. So for a council who is including either side, uh, just to spend it in intrinsic evidence, explain it all here to keep in mind uh, just to determine the purpose of parliament. Yeah, it's a hard, that's a really good question. So. Yeah, extrinsically, or what's the evidentiary basis you would have to use in order to challenge something like this on the basis of um, some malicious intent in, uh, in how a permit was, was granted or not granted? 
And the reality is it's extremely hard to, um, to prove your case when you're trying to argue that somebody was acting for an untoward purpose. So within the context of a judicial review, you may remember why I pitched judicial review is so nice to practice, is you get the record given to you. This is what was before the decision maker. And you argue on the basis of that record. You're not going back and forth about documents for years, which is the reality of complex civil litigation. But if your concern is that there really has been a capricious or arbitrary abuse of power, it's probably not going to show up in that record, right? It's probably not going to be like, yeah, here's the, uh, the record, and there's a smoking gun right in there that says we did this for no good reason whatsoever. In fact, we just didn't like you. Like, it's, it's going to probably not be in there. So the tort that I mentioned earlier of, um, of misfeasance or malfeasance in public office, it's called either, that allows you document discovery on the civil standard, right? And that's where you're going to be digging and digging and digging and um, discovering, doing examinations for discovery. I don't know if you've done civil procedure yet. Uh, it's, it's boring, but really important. Uh, and the, the, um, you're going to have to bring to bear all those tools of civil procedure to try to find that smoking gun piece of evidence. So it can be really hard to make out a case that someone's just been abusing their power. Um, there's a whole body of law around that that I won't, I won't get into, but it, it is an interesting issue. So you would be looking for evidence that would show um, some sort of actual intention. And here they had it, right? I don't know if people read it. I think it's in the not highlighted paragraphs, but there was um, a direct letters back and forth from Duplessis to the commission that they had in, in evidence where Duplessis said, don't, don't give this guy the thing, you know, on the Jehovah's Witness ground. Um, so, briefly, you know, important case, fundamental idea of public official, even when entrusted with the broad discretion, does not have the unlimited ability to use that power as they please. You want to remind yourself the root of this case is in statutory interpretation. I don't interpret the statute as having intended to allow this to be done for this reason. You want to also take away um, that the rule of law won't allow this untrammeled, endless discretion. And you want to remember too, this is a bit nuanced, but it's important. What we're talking about an untrammeled discretion is not exclusively, you know, unlimited power to do anything you want to. I've used the example before, kind of silly of, um, you know, if you want to have this, this um, workers' compensation decision set aside, you have to pay me X number of dollars or, you know, whatever it is. It's just a plain abuse of power. Well, there's no, there's no ability in the statute to, make an, to, to demand somebody pay you personally money. So that's sort of the, there's no, potential for untrammeled discretion over what you can order. But this case says it's not just the what. Nobody questions that what the commission is allowed to do is cancel a license. They also say there's no untrammeled discretion over the why, right? 
So it's not just the what, it's also the why. And that's an important point to take away in this idea about where the scope of the discretion might lie. So, important case, foundational case. Sad note, Frank Roncarelli gets his win, gets like $3,000 and then dies, like really soon afterwards. He worked as a, he was like doing labor for the last 15 years of his life. So, that raises another question I just want you to have in mind. This person is the victim of an act that's found to be illegal by the Supreme Court of Canada, by at least the majority Supreme Court of Canada. It takes him 13 years to get that vindication. For 13 years, he's, he's working manual labor, he's lost his restaurant. You know, is, the, is this a rule of law success story? You know, maybe not. It's a, um, we're gonna come back to this question of sort of justice delayed. Is that justice denied? Is there a, a requirement to get these things done in a reasonable amount of time to uphold the rule of law? It's an interesting question. So just a sort of sad note to, to end on for this somewhat sad but endlessly fascinating case. Yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, why was it only $3,000 especially since it's not necessarily a min-law case, it's more of a civil case? Yeah, absolutely. Could he not sue for a loss of income? He did, yeah. He asked for like 100 grand. And I haven't read the trial decision, which I think is in French. Unfortunately, my French is very poor. Um, but yeah, so that was the thing, that the trial decision comes out, and it's like you have a very surprising finding against the premier but also a very surprisingly low amount of money given. And yes, I would say absolutely that the loss of business would be the, the damages. And you would have expected to be able to say um, either the, uh, the loss is an ongoing, uh, you know, current value of the, of the future profits of that business, or you'd be able to say what should have been the sale of your business price with a liquor license as compared to this forced sale in a distressed circumstance. So yeah, the damages don't make sense, I don't think. Sure, yeah, absolutely. 3,000 is a lot more than, than now, but still it's not, it's not yes. enough. It's not enough to make up for the loss of the thriving business. And that's $3,000 13 years after he lost it too. Um, all right. So, any other questions on Ron Corelli? I think what I'll do is I'll talk about insight because it's not going to take an exceptionally long time, um, and then we'll take our break. Can't believe that. Like, the first day we were here, it was summer, right? <laughs> and then on Wednesday, it was like the most beautiful fall day. It was like, this is what fall should be. And now it's December. <laughs> All right, so insight. I'm sure you've studied insight, right? Have you? 
No, some haven't. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just surprised. Um, Insight is such a fascinating case. Uh, well, I'll give a tiny bit more on the facts and I kind of would assume everybody had, um, was familiar with it. So, Insight is a safe injection site in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Um, I believe it's still the case that no one's ever died at Insight. I haven't checked that, but until at least recently, it definitely was the case. It's a place where you go and you bring your drugs and there's medical staff there who help you inject the drugs, give you clean needles, and then they're there with the you know, Narcan uh, if you overdose to, to bring you back. And there's been like thousands of overdoses, but no deaths. So it was aimed at this idea of a harm reduction model where we are going to, instead of saying, Drugs are illegal, don't do drugs. We're gonna say, drugs are illegal, don't do drugs, but if you do drugs, let's try to make them safe. That's sort of the, the, the thinking behind Insight, um, run by the Portland Hotel Society. So that's why it's called PHS. Um, so what you, what you had here is really interesting. It's illegal under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to possess these drugs, to you know, assist in the consumption of these drugs. Um, if you or I were to just go and, um, you know, I know there's been some recent law around decriminalization, but if we were just going, you know, say, hey, let me get that heroin from you. Okay, here's, I'll, I'll cook it up for you and I'll put it in a nice clean needle. Here you go, and inject that safely. Um, that would be illegal, right? That's, that's illegal under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. But here's a really key part of the, of the CDSA is there's a provision, section 56, that allows the minister, I think it's the Minister of Health, to issue an exemption from the prohibition if necessary in medical, scientific, or for the public interest. That exemption is what would allow, for example, um, a scientist to study the effects of methamphetamine would allow uh, doctors to prescribe or to give many drugs that are otherwise prohibited under the CDSA. You know, fentanyl is a horrible drug that's causing all sorts of damage. It's also a drug that my mom took for her cancer. Like, I mean, it, it's got positives and negatives, right? So, um, you have the safety valve provision. You have the minister using it to say, yeah, insight. You know, let's, let's try. You go ahead and try. You can have this exemption. Get a new government comes in. The new government says, we don't believe in this sort of quote-unquote harm prevention model. We like the, um, the, the prohibitory model. We think that you're just encouraging drug use, and ultimately um, it's gonna, in the long run, do more harm than good to leave insight around. We are an elected government. This is consistent with our broad mandate. And so, you know what, we're not even gonna cancel your exemption, but when it comes up for you know, renewal, it's time limited, we're just not gonna renew your exemption. 
um, well, the proponents of insight are aghast. Uh, we're going to lose this place that saved so many lives. What do they do? They go find Joe Arve. You guys know who Joe Arve is? It's literally the best lawyer ever, I think. Um, he you know, really is, like, if you look back on your constitutional law cases, you will find less cases he's not involved in than ones he is involved in. Um, he died tragically um, very recently. Uh, you know, the day after he died, Supreme Court of Canada started their, their hearing with a just impromptu remembrance of him. Um, we'll watch him give submissions. That's one thing I am going to do a fair amount is show you submissions at the Supreme Court of Canada. I quite like that as a learning tool. And we'll watch how Joe Arve gave submissions. Um, you know, absolutely brilliant lawyer. Anyways, um, so he launches this challenge and he challenges the legislation. He challenges on the basis of interjurisdictional immunity, which is, I'm sure, everyone's like, favorite concept from first year. But you may remember interjurisdictional immunity um, has this odd feature where it's been very uh, unbalanced and it's really only benefited the federal government at the expense of the provincial government's jurisdiction. Well, insight at the Court of Appeal level was this like groundbreaking interjurisdictional immunity case because it actually found provincial uh, jurisdiction protected from federal intrusion, saying that the jurisdiction over health and healthcare services was core provincial jurisdiction, which couldn't be undermined by federal law such as this, which precluded you know, a life-saving medical service, is how Justice Hutter of the BC Court of Appeal saw it. Goes to the Supreme Court of Canada and Joe Arbe loses on the challenge to the legislation. They say the legislation's fine. Loses on the interjurisdictional immunity. The court says, maybe there's provincial interjurisdictional immunity, but you still haven't found it here, Joe. But he wins on effectively an embedded administrative law argument. What he wins on is the argument that it was arbitrary to exercise discretion under Section 56, where you can grant that exemption. It was arbitrary to exercise it as against insight. And this is framed within Section 7 of the Charter. The court says, what you have here is a law that has the potential to deprive somebody of um, life, liberty, or security of the person. You got a hook for Section 7. And so therefore, the law cannot be arbitrary. And furthermore, administrative decisions made pursuant to that law cannot be arbitrary either. So it's an alternative route to get to arbitrariness. But the notion that you can't have an arbitrary exercise of statutory authority didn't need the charter, right? You could have gotten that from Ron Corelli if you wanted to. So again, this is not a judicial review case. This is a charter challenge. This is a case with mountains of evidence. 
the trial. But again, it's got an embedded administrative law issue because the question is, did the administrative decision maker, the Minister of Health, exceed their jurisdiction in failing to give this exemption to Insight? And the court said yes, because they said, well, you know, Minister, please tell me what the purpose of this statute is. And Canada says, oh, it's um, to protect public health and safety. And they say, okay, so the evidence as found in trial shows that traditional criminal law prohibitions have done little to reduce drug use in the downtown east side. The risk to injection drug users of death and disease is reduced when they inject under the supervision of a health professional. And the presence of insight did not contribute to increased crime rates, increased incidence of public injection, or relapse rates in injection drug users. So they said, you're saying it's health and safety, but every finding at trial shows that insight promoted or at least didn't negatively affect health and safety. So the court says it was arbitrary to deny this exemption. Whenever you think arbitrariness, you want to think there's a fundamental rule of law concern at issue. But what does Canada say in response to, this, to the notion, the idea, that the law would be, uh, or that the exemption would be sort of forced upon them on the basis it was arbitrary to not grant the exemption? They say, hold on. Uh, deciding as, as you're you know, proposing to, and as you ultimately will, that violates the rule. So Canada's arguing the rule of law is violated by the Supreme Court of Canada's decision because they say what you have is drug users repeatedly violating a drug law have become unable to comply with it and then saying it's unconstitutional to apply it to them. And so they say that the specter is drug laws being flouted with impunity from coast to coast because as soon as you say, I can't comply with it anymore, all of a sudden it's arbitrary to apply it to you. So they say the rule of law couldn't allow the flouting, the breaking of a law to be a basis for striking or to, for challenging a legal decision. So the court says, no, that we don't accept that on the facts, that that's going to happen, or that is what happened. We're being realistic on the findings of fact made at trial. That's how they reject that argument. It's basically factual. But again, you know, I'm a broken record on this theme that different sides are always going to try to grasp the rule of law. One side says, rule of law demands that an exercise of discretion not be arbitrary. The other side says, rule of law demands that breaking a law doesn't mean you get to keep on breaking the law. So, you know, you can always find these rule of law ideas embedded in different arguments. And so you want to, you know, I hope as, as we're getting more, um, more nuanced understandings of the idea of the concept of the rule of law that we're saying, it's almost not even a concept, it's, it's a bunch of concepts kind of rolled into one. Um, okay, so 
that's why I want to talk about the insight case. Are there any questions or comments on that? All right, let's take our break now and uh, we'll come back and talk about the, the next two cases. All right, let's get back to it. Um, I had a really great uh, question during the break, um, which was, what am I to take away about the intersection of the charter and administrative law coming out of the Insight case? Great question. The answer is a little bit convoluted, and this takes a um, time explaining. So the issue of the intersection of the charter and administrative law is like a week of this course. It's a very interesting issue, and I think it's probably one of the two areas that's most ripe for um, some big rethinking by the Supreme Court of Canada. There's a lot of sort of, uh, feels like it's in the air that they're gonna rethink this approach that they have. The current approach is from a case called Doré, which we'll read, and it's this charter values analysis. And Doré comes out about a year after Insight, and the approach in Insight is really not consistent with the approach taken in Doré. So on the question of how do we grapple with the intersection of administrative law and the charter, I don't want you to overread Insight for that. We're gonna come back to that issue. Why it's a bit convoluted is I kind of think the approach from Insight may be revived and there may be a more direct charter analysis to administrative law issues that comes in the future. We'll see. Um, but we'll come back, we'll talk about Doré in about a month's time. The big takeaways from Insight though is I want you to start to recognize these embedded administrative law problems within other cases. We saw it within a tort case, now we saw it within a charter case. And I also want you to take away, again, this running theme about different groups trying to grasp the mantle of the rule of law. All right. Um, so two more cases today. Um, next one's the Highwood Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't think I can maintain my same ratio of two-thirds of the cases being Jehovah's Witness cases for the rest of the course. <laughs> I'm trying my best, but it's, it's tricky. Um, this is an interesting case, though, because this we're getting so close to judicial review. Well, we're not there yet. This is, this is somebody trying to get into judicial review, but failing. And in the context of explaining why they fail, the court has a nice articulation of what judicial review is and ties it into the rule of law and leaves us with a better sense as to what we are talking about through administrative law, you know, through learning right now what we're not talking about. So in this case, you have an individual who was... Um, disfellowed or subject to disfellowship 
by the Jehovah's Witness group he was a member of. He had apparently engaged in, in behavior they disapproved of, and a decision was made to disfellow him. And the process that you had looked really administrative law-y. So there's a group, um, the Judicial Committee, it sounds pretty law-y, of the Highwood Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses. They make the decision after hearing from him and hearing from others to subject him to disfellowship. Then there's even an internal review process where he gets to go up to a higher committee within the Jehovah's Witness structure. They confirm his disfellowship decision. So then he goes to the trial court. He goes to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. And he says, hey, this decision to kick me out of this religious organization was done in an unfair way. He seeks, through a, a petition to the court, judicial review of the decision of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So the question that arises is, hold on, can the courts even determine this? Is this within the jurisdiction of the courts and their supervisory uh, oversight of judicial review? Is this even an administrative law case at all? Is this a body that can be subject to administrative law? And the court says, no, it's not. Justice Rowe, writing for the court, says, no, the judicial review ensures the legality of state decision-making, not the decision-making processes of private organizations. And at section, or paragraph 96, he frames it quite clearly, ironically referencing section 96 courts. Justice Rowe saying, Judicial review is a public law concept. It allows Section 96 courts to engage in surveillance of lower tribunals to ensure that these tribunals respect the rule of law. Private parties cannot seek judicial review to solve disputes that may arise between them. And so, what you want to think is the rule of law is a concept that governs state activity in some sense. It isn't a concept that governs private relationships. If you were to form a study group in this class, for example, uh, and you were to kick out somebody because they type too loudly or whatever it may be, <laughs> you would not be able, the, the, the loud typist would not be able to go to the court and say, reinstate me in that group. It's a private organization. And there's, you're not governed by a, a, a legal framework, a legal relationship. Now, you may have private organizations that enter into contractual relationships 
You may owe a private law duty to one another in tort law. There are ways that legal relationships obviously arise between private people. But those are the fields of tort law. Those are the fields of contract law. If you can't establish a contract or a tort or some basis to find a legal relationship between private individuals, what this court says is you can't run off to the court and say, I want judicial review, no matter how much it looks like this private body has sort of created a, a legal structure. The respondent, uh, the, the person who was saying, no, we should be able to judicially review this. Um, that was an interesting hearing. I almost feel like I, I wish I had shown you that hearing, because it's really ably argued by a really good lawyer from Vancouver um, named Michael Fetter, but the court just is not having it. Like, if you want to see a good lawyer be roasted, you should watch, the, <laughs> watch him here. Um, and he stood up remarkably strong, but I mean, they weren't, they weren't having it. And nobody doesn't have it more than Justice Rowe. Like, he slams on his microphone to turn it on, and if he doesn't like your answer, he slams it off again. It's like he's something that's, we'll see him, we'll watch him. Um, so, fundamentally though, this is not a hugely complex point that the court makes. And when, the way they say it, you're like, yeah, obviously. But don't forget, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench and the Court of Appeal both, you know, went the other way. So it, it didn't seem that obvious to them. But they say judicial review, the court says, judicial review is only available where there is an exercise of state authority and where that exercise is of a sufficiently public character. So you need an exercise of state authority. This is the important sort of takeaway. Where is judicial review available? Where you have an exercise of state authority and that exercise is of a sufficiently public nature. Now that second part I'll talk about in a second is very much the secondary point. But this all comes back to our original diagram on the board. What is the executive? It is this entity that exercises these functions that are given to it by legislation or the royal prerogative. But legislation is important. So you need to find an exercise of state authority in order to found judicial review. The secondary component of a sufficiently public character gets at the idea that sometimes the state acts in a fundamentally private way, basically when it engages in contracts. The state is a legal person that can enter into legally binding agreements. And the court says, look, I, I want those to be done, not through judicial review as a general rule, but through contract law. So if, uh, you know, the, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans hires SNC-Lavalin to clean the floors, uh, that contract is going to be governed by the law of contract, and you're not going to be able to judicially review that contract. That's not going to be your, your avenue. That's a fundamentally private nature of an arrangement, and the 
state involvement's not going to be sufficient to bring it within. The key point is judicial review is about state conduct. So if you have a private actor, it's private arrangements, and they try to fit their case within the law of judicial review, they may meet the same fate as the, the case against the Jehovah's Witnesses and be told we, we don't have the jurisdiction within that framing, within that um, a, a judicial review application to determine your issue. There's another issue that comes up in this case. I don't think I even highlighted the passage, but I will touch on it briefly. It's an idea we'll come back to, and it's, I've mentioned it already. It's the idea of justiciability, justiciability. And so what Justice Rowe says is, look, this is not within the jurisdiction of the court on judicial review applications to start concerning ourselves with private affairs. But even if it was within jurisdiction, I would still find it's not justiciable. And justiciability, again, is this idea of not whether you can decide a case, but whether you as the court should decide a case. We're going to come back to justiciability. We'll see fights on justiciability. And to prefigure something we're going to see next week, this gets at the idea that all remedies on administrative law matters are discretionary. Comes out of equity. We'll get into all that. But because of the discretionary nature of these remedies, there's going to be always a question of should. Should the court give this relief? Should the court get involved in this dispute? So Rose says, this is not even a judicial review. You're outside of the jurisdiction of this court on judicial review. Even if you're within jurisdiction, forget it. It's not a justiciable issue. It's not the sort of thing that we should be opining upon. So that's the Highwood Congregation case. It's not a hugely important one, but it illustrates this this point, I think, nicely, and um, you know, a lot of the time these things seem so clear once the Supreme Court decides them, but they can be more difficult, you know, on the way up. Any any questions on this case? Yeah. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, just to connect the dots, mm -hmm. uh, the public act is not that we just study and talk about. It's similar to what we study in public law, government actions and government actors. Yeah. Yeah, it's similar. That's applicability of the charter, so we're going to need to sort of not draw that analogy too far, but there is a similarity. Yeah. So, uh, from the gist of the case, it seems to me it's uh, not a multi-dimensional case. It's uh, mainly based on administrative review uh, from, uh, from the admin to applicant. Um, so in this kind of situations, why, why these cases even reach to the Supreme Court when the trial court or first level court already knows that this is not something close to intervene based on the administrative authority. Yeah, well, the trial court said, no, it's fine. This is within jurisdiction. We're going ahead. So there was, a, there was that mistake at the trial level court. Um, why things get Supreme Court of Canada is, is, is a mystery. Why the next case got Supreme Court of Canada, I could not tell you. That's a very surprising one. Um, and some cases that really should get there don't. So. Um, that's sort of a, a different topic, the test for leave and how things get up there. Um, we might get into that probably, probably not in any real great extent. But yeah, it's a fair question. It seems like a pretty rote 
you know, just small dispute. And then you think about you know, what, what all went into this, how much money went into this case, and it starts to be almost mind-boggling. Like, like the guys uh, clearly asking for something totally inappropriate to want, right? Well, I mean, it feels that way, but the, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench was like, yeah, no, we can, we can decide this. You know, we can, we can intervene here. So um, there, there was some law around uh, review of religious organizations that came from, in part, the idea that some of these organizations are given powers through statutes. There's a whole dis discussion here about private bills, and it gets a bit esoteric and deep parliamentary stuff, but there are these... I didn't even know about these things until I read this case. Um, have you heard about, like there's private member bills, we probably remember those, right? But a private bill is a bill that affects simply one company. It's not a private or one entity or one group. It's a very strange parliamentary thing where, you know, it, it dates back to when there really was an administrative actor. So almost all power is running through parliament. So if you wanted to incorporate, you know, parliament would, would do that for you. And there's some vestiges of that, especially in religious organizations, where they get their powers through a private bill that says, you know, there shall be United Church of Canada. And so then the question is, well, then is everything they do subject to judicial review because there's a state hook? I'm not going to get into all that. That gets pretty um, complicated. But that law might help explain how the court was confused at the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench level and why you know, it had to go up to clarify, hold on, if you want to do judicial review, you better find um, an exercise of state authority. Yeah. So, so we talked about the idea of the executive drawing its power from the statute or the royal prerogative. Yeah. Is there any instance where the executive draws its power directly from the constitution? That's a good question. and. Um, kind of a complicated answer. Uh, like I, there are some things that you might say are implicit in the Constitution in terms of how the executive is going to function and what powers they're going to have. And so you, you could make an argument around that. It's pretty esoteric and unimportant, frankly, for the practical like application of administrative law because this is such a it's not, in, in practice, none of the executive functions that we're talking about come directly from the Constitution. They come from statute or the prerogative, ultimately traceable. So it's a good question, but it doesn't admit of a really great answer. Like, you could argue that, in theory, yes, but in practice, it doesn't really, that, that's not really the way things go. Any other questions? Okay. So let's talk about the last case. Finally, this is just pure administrative law. This is Celgene. And what you have here is, the reason I, I like this case is it sort of, it, it springboards us into real admin law and it does it through showing kind of how far we've gotten from Cartwright's descent in Ron Corelli to a real primacy of 
a judicial understanding of parliamentary intent and the purpose of a law in determining the scope of what falls within the administrative discretion created by that law. And here it goes so far as to say, look, because of our you know, judicial understanding of what the purpose of this law is, based on you know, a few Hansard debates and some quotes that you kind of could say are um, not as clear and convincing in previous jurisprudence as the court maybe pretends they are, because of that, we are going to say, you know, we don't need to be constrained by the traditional commercial law definition of a term that's in a statute, and we don't need to be constrained by um, concerns over extraterritorial application of legislation, but we are going to do what's going to fit within the ability of Parliament to accomplish its purpose in regulating these patented medicines. So you get, you get quite a strong departure from um, you know, what might be a, a very simple, plain reading of the words of a statute in order to allow it to accomplish its purpose and find jurisdiction in that way. So Celgene, uh, interesting case, interesting sort of issue that may take a few minutes to explain, but we want to all be on the same page on the facts because they kind of are important to make the concept stick. So what you have is an administrative decision maker, the Patented Medicine Price Review Board. Again, when you think about the breadth of the administrative decision makers that exist in Canada, it's, it's staggering. And here's another example. This is a group whose job it is to you know, make sure patented medicines are priced at a reasonable amount. This is like the anti-Martin Shrikali board. It's basically what you can think of here. No more Wu-Tang albums for Martin Shrikali in Canada. So the, the board has the power to fix prices for medicines in Canada. In order to fix the price for medicines in Canada, they need to be able to access information from the drug manufacturers about the medicines, the prices that it took to research and develop them, the price to produce them. If you want to say you gotta sell medicine for a fair price, you gotta be able to know what that fair price is, right? So the question in this case is the scope of this board's power to demand information from a drug company. The wrinkle comes in in that this drug company is in New Jersey. And this Jersey drug company is pretty tight-lipped. And in fact, it's like they're, they've gotten into trouble. Uh, they, they have some aggressive business practices. They paid $300 million to settle a fraud claim in the US. They faced antitrust claims over their efforts to sort of block their drugs from being made by generic companies. So, you know, if you pick a fight with these guys, you're gonna expect that you might start here and end up up there. I wanna see what happened here. 
what have what the um, how the administrative regime works? Well, I'll start with how the facts work. Actually, how they well, I'll do a bit of both. So the way the administrative regime works for medicines in Canada is there's two routes to selling a medicine in essence that matter here. One is you can um, get what's called a notice of compliance, which effectively means yes, your drug is safe and good and can be sold in Canada and you know go forth. The other thing you can get is you can get a, an ability to sell your drug through a special access program. And what this means is if there's a drug that's not otherwise available, but it's for the treatment of serious conditions where conventional therapies have failed, you can get these drugs, the doctor can order these drugs, and they can be used despite them never having received a notice of compliance. So it's like either you're just notice of compliance, you're good to go, you're selling them in Canada, or a special access program, doctors can buy them you know, on an individual case-by-case -case basis. However, there's no limit to how long you can just be under the special access program. There's no requirement that if you're going to keep doing it, you got to go for a notice of compliance. And there's no limit to how often you can sell drugs on the special access program. So clever, you know, businessly, businessly, clever companies that are aggressive in a business sense, clever drug companies, they, um, can take advantage of this by selling their drugs in other jurisdictions for tax or regulatory purposes through the special access program. How it works is a doctor in Canada says, okay, this patient has multiple myeloma, they need this drug from this company, from Celgene, um, the only way to get it is special access program. So I place an order with Celgene. They package the drugs up, um, what's called free on board shipping. Have you heard of that phrase before? It, yeah, it's a commercial concept. And what it means is as soon as I put that thing in the mailbox, you own it. I don't own it anymore. Uh, the idea is to or it comes up as a way to decide who's going to be responsible if something's damaged in transit, right? I mean, you think about, you know, it comes out of shipping across the oceans, and if it arrives and your, you know, your paprika is all wet from the ocean voyage, is it you or is it the person who sold it to you who has to bear the loss? Um, but the, you know, you can also use it to manipulate the locus of your sale. If you want to, you want this sale to take place in New Jersey, you say, okay, I put it in the mail. You own it. You bought it in New Jersey. It's no different than if you drove down to Jersey and grabbed it and drove back up. So they have this, this business arrangement set up with the explicit reason to keep their sales within New Jersey. They don't have a notice of compliance, which allows them to effectively do business in Canada. And they complete their sales um, as soon as their box is given to the mail. But they don't, they don't want to avoid the Canadian legal system entirely because they also don't want a generic just ripping them off and selling the drug in Canada 
So they apply for a patent. They say, we want to have a patent here, but we're not going to be selling it here. We'll sell it in Jersey. Well, the patent, the, the, um, the board then says, okay, well, you have a patent. Um, we are going to exercise our powers to review the pricing with which you're selling these drugs. So the whole case turns on a provision of the Patent Act which allows an investigation of the pricing at which medicine, and here's the in the quotes from the statute, is being or has been sold in any market in Canada. So what is this case turned on? Simple statutory interpretation, right? Is a drug that's made in New Jersey, is sold in New Jersey, but is sent to Canada and consumed in Canada, is it sold in any market in Canada? And at the federal court, the trial level, sorry, so let me just take a step back. The Patent and Medicine Price Review Board, they say, this is being sold in Canada. Let's not, let's call it what it is. This is drugs that are being sent to Canada to be used by Canadian doctor or Canadian patients in the Canadian market. We say this is being sold in Canada. We have the juror. There is the jurisdiction to make this request. Goes to the federal court. At the federal court level, Justice Campbell, fascinating guy. He was a judge at age 29, if you can imagine, and just retired at age 75 recently. Um, Justice Campbell says, look, I don't know what to say. Um, I've been directed in previous cases, and there's tax jurisprudence on to this effect, that the commercial standard accepted commercial definitions should be given strong weight in interpreting legislation. Where something is sold is a really big issue that comes up over and over and over again. There is clear commercial law around this. And this medicine is being sold in New Jersey. I mean, that's, that's the locus of sale. Maybe it's artificial, whatever it is, but that's where it's being sold, so it's not medicine that's been sold in Canada. You know, implicit would be maybe, a, you could say, consumed in Canada or something. You could have been more clear, Parliament, if you wanted to get around this commercial definition. So he allows the judicial review, sets aside the decision, you know, and says, in essence, okay, you don't have to comply with this. Goes up to the Court of Appeal, there you have a two-to-one split. Two judges say, no, the purpose of the um, Patent Act is furthered by allowing this to be regulated as the administrative decision maker chose. One judge says, no, I agree with Judge Campbell. Uh, you know, it's the sold means sold, and sold is in New Jersey. So it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada. Just pause for a second on our rule of law um, idea about um, 
you know, there being a positive set of laws and the idea of laws being knowable and fairly clear. And, you know, when you have four judges that have looked at something, two say, absolutely, you must comply with this order. Two say, this is just outside of your jurisdiction, you don't have to comply with it at all. It does illustrate the difficulty that I alluded to in previous courses, or previous classes. But you get up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they say, we agree with the majority at the Court of Appeal. We agree with the administrative decision maker. It is within your jurisdiction to demand this information from this company. And in so doing, they recite the modern approach to statutory interpretation. I'm sure you've heard that before, right? Is there a statutory interpretation course you take? No, okay. Um, the modern approach to statutory interpretation, um, and specifically the Canada Trust Co version of that, it's almost like an incantation if you're doing any statutory interpretation exercise, you have to say this. But they say um, the words of an act are to be read in their entire context and their grammatical and ordinary sense, harmoniously with the scheme of the act, the object of the act, and the intention of parliament. That's the modern approach. Um, where the words of a provision are precise and unequivocal, the ordinary meaning of the words play a dominant role in the interpretation. On the other hand, where the words can support more than one reasonable meaning, the ordinary meaning of the words plays a lesser role. So the court in Selgene summarizes the approach. If the words are clear, the words, if clear, will dominate. If not, they yield to an interpretation that best meets the overriding purpose of the statute. So it's that best meets the overriding purpose of the statute that you should see an echo from Ron Corelli and Rand right through to Selgene. And the court in this case says, look, the question is, is sold, is that sold in the commercial interpretation context determinative of an intention to focus on New Jersey? And if not, does a broader purposive interpretation, in fact, suggests that Parliament intended there to be jurisdiction over these types of sales. And the court decides that the board got it right. They say, the board did not misinterpret the words sold and selling. In rejecting the technical commercial law definition, the board was guided by the commercial protection goals of its mandate concluding the Selgene's approach would undercut these objectives by preventing the board from protecting Canadian purchasers of their medicine. So they say fundamentally, I'm not convinced that the word sold is so clear that it's gonna answer this question for you. Rather, I want you to consider the purpose of this scheme, the intentions of parliament in setting up this scheme and they say it's to protect people in Canada from being gouged on medicine prices. Which interpretation is more consistent with that goal? Well, obviously it's requiring this company to comply with this um, regime that allows them to check the price, right? So as a result, 
the judicial review, the initial decision to set aside the order is reversed, the administrative decision stands, and the company is ordered to comply with the board's order. Remarkably, it got from here to here to here to here in three years. That's actually very fast for a Supreme Court of Canada case. Easily be five, six, seven years. And sometime, but during the interim, you know, while it was at the trial court and trial court decision was out there, uh, and while that judicial review was pending, you know what Celgene didn't do? It was comply, right? So they bought themselves three years. You want to also have that in mind. Sometimes judicial review can be an end in and of itself from the fact that it can drag these things on. We're going to see that when we get to pipeline cases, this concern being very much in the court's mind. But what I want, what I like this case for is both it, it brings us into the realm of real judicial review. It gives us a window again into statutory interpretation. It ties into the Ron Corelli case in that it shows how thoroughly the Cartwright position was rejected in the sense that, well, the words say what they say. I don't care what parliament intended. And the Rand position was accepted. I like all that, but it also underscores the, the, you know, this, this theme we've been get, getting at throughout the course so far about the rule of law and predictability. When you have these difficult questions, no matter how much you, you would like it to be otherwise, in reality, what judge you get makes a gigantic difference as to how the case will be decided. At the Court of Appeal level, the dissenting judge was a private tax practitioner for his entire career. Setting up business arrangements to maximize uh, tax and regulatory benefits is his entire career, right? If he, if he looks at this and he's going to say, okay, fair is fair. Parliament set the rules. Parliament could change the rules. The rules as they apply were followed to set up a clever business arrangement that allows this company to do what it does. And you know what? If, if you don't like it, um, you don't have to buy it from them, in essence. The majority judge was an admin law prop for his whole career. Uh, the majority judge at the Federal Court of Appeal says, you know, hold on, you're, you're, you're ignoring your you know, more deep reading of the rule of law, you've undermined Parliament's clear purpose here, um, I've got a more, he might say, progressive and um, you know, Bingham-centered version of the rule of law that's going to allow me to get there. So as we leave the rule of law, I want to come back to that very first point that I made. Um, the rule of law, the idea that you know, law, not men, rule. And in theory, absolutely. 
in practice, how much can you divorce the person applying the law from the law itself? It can be very difficult. So, with just a final two minutes, um, we've gotten through the rule of law. We've stayed very theoretical. We've landed in a few cases to see how the ideas resonate. I could have picked any cases almost to illustrate rule of law because these ideas come up over and over and over again. We will inevitably come back to them. I hope this has set a good framing. Where we're going to next is remedy. And this is such an important part of administrative law and it's often dealt with at the end of administrative law courses, sometimes even skipped because you're like, well, you kind of got that throughout the course. I really strongly believe, just as the book does, it needs to come right at the front. We need to know what you could potentially get by going to judicial review before we can understand you know, what lens they're gonna apply in resolving your judicial review application. And the readings for Tuesday um, or Wednesday have a nice, um, a nice breadth to them because they talk about the remedies you can get at the administrative level and they talk about at the courts. They draw upon um, the uh, Gitsan decision about pipelines, which is an example that they use several times throughout the book. So I'm just gonna really briefly make sure we're all up to speed on the basic idea in what happened in that Gitsan case. So the Gitsan, um, that's the Northern Gateway pipeline that they object to. Federal Court of Appeal, here's a technically a statutory appeal, but it's read very much like a judicial review. They grant the remedy of setting aside the administrative decision for a failure to discharge the constitutional duty to consult. We're gonna talk about duty to consult and um, Aboriginal law towards the end of the course. What's the remedy? Do they say you can't build this pipeline? Do they say that the rights of this group have been violated in a substantive way? No, they just say go, go do the procedure again. Is there anything to stop the government from simply doing the procedure again and saying, okay, now go ahead and build the pipeline? Absolutely not. That is not what happened in the Northern Gateway example. The government changed and the new government said we're scrapping the pipeline. That is exactly what happened in the Trans Mountain Pipeline example. The Trans Mountain Pipeline approval is set aside. They go back and consult more and then they make the same decision again and the pipeline is being built today. So when you think about remedies, you want to think about what is available, like what are the actual powers of the court, and practically how far would that get a client? Those are the two framings that you want for remedy. The theoretical, in theory, what's the power? Practical, in practice, is this gonna get somebody where they want to go? Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Wednesday.